Hello, and welcome to this episode of the Psychology of Music podcast, hosted by the York Music Psychology Group, and dedicated to exploring the fascinating fields of music psychology, music cognition, systematic and empirical musicology. My name is Dr. Mimi O'Neill, and I'm thrilled to welcome you, or to welcome you back. The goal is to share our work with each other in the field, and also to make these exciting topics more accessible to non-specialist audiences. So, whether you are a researcher, a student, a musician, a music lover, or just curious about the way that we interact with music, you're in the right place. We'll feature interviews with experts in the field who are sharing their latest research findings and providing practical insights into how the new knowledge created can be applied. Our guest today is Professor David Tempoli, a composer and music theorist at Eastman School of Music at the University of Rochester. He has explored aspects of music cognition, such as meter perception, key perception, harmonic analysis and melodic expectation using computational modelling and a corpus method to explore questions of musical style and broader issues of music cognition. David also has an interest in language research, focusing on parsing, sentence production and comprehension, and corpus research. In his Music Cognition Matters talk, which you can see at 1pm BST, David will be discussing the theory of uniform information density, a model originally proposed for language, and its application in music cognition. Hello and welcome to the Psychology of Music podcast and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to talk to me. If I may, I'd like to start by asking you where you situate yourself and your work in this web of music psychology, psychology of music, music cognition, etc. Or, or is it actually perhaps in a different field? I'm sort of all over the place. I started my graduate education in composition, so I am a composer, and then I switched into music theory for my doctorate. Uh, and some of my research has been in sort of mainstream music theory. I've, I've written papers about rhythm and meter and, uh, and things like that from a sort of theoretical perspective. But I would say my sort of home discipline is music cognition defined broadly, which I see as being kind of the, an interdisciplinary field that looks at music cognition from different methodological perspectives. And some of my work has been sort of theory building and some of it has been computational. A lot of my early research was developing computational models of different aspects of music cognition. And then I've, I've done a bit of experimental work um, and quite a lot of corpus work. So statistical analysis of, of musical data. So again, I'm sort of all over the place, but, um, and I've dabbled a little bit in language research as well, just to make things more complicated. But um, <laughs> I would say uh, my home really is in the field of music cognition. Great. Thank you. Um, and your current work, if I, if we can explore that a bit more, um, looks at uniform information density. For those of us that are not familiar with this, can you explain it or, or just sort of give us an introductory overview? Sure. Well, um, information has a sort of a technical meaning, um, and it relates very much to expectation. And um, people have thought for a long time that expectation is a big part of music and musical experience and why we like music, that maybe Leonard Meyer in the 1950s was the most famous 
proponent of that view, but many other people. David Huron recently had wrote a, a very um, well-known book about this idea, the idea that something about the way music plays with expectation is really important in our experience of it. And um, there's this field of information theory that developed in the 1950s that relates information to probability. If we're fairly certain that something will happen and it does, then it conveys very little information. If something happens that we don't expect, then it conveys a lot of information. So these ideas of information, probability, expectation are all very much intertwined. They're all different ways of talking about the same thing. And information density is basically um, within a segment of music, how predictable are things? How surprising are they? You know, how, how much are they confirming our expectations? Um, along with just the density of notes, right? If, if a segment of music has a lot of notes, then it's conveying more information just because of, of that. So that's the idea of information density. And the idea of uniform information density is that music is kind of uh, most satisfying when that, that information density is kind of keeps a sort of moderate level. Uh, not too high and not too low. And <clears throat> just to throw another concept in there, um, it's related also to the idea of complexity. I mean, many people have argued that high information is basically high complexity. And so this ties in with ideas that um, input is best for humans when it maintains a moderate level of complexity. And that there's a guy, Daniel Berline, who talked about that in the 60s and 70s, and that's been very influential. And um, he applied it to visual patterns and other things, but it seems to be relevant to, uh, to music as well. A simple example is, you know, when, you're, when a pianist is going along and playing a, uh, a romantic piano piece, say, and they're going along and playing a series of chords, and then they get to a chord that's kind of unexpected. Maybe it's a chromatic chord or it's a sudden change, move to a remote key or something like that. Well, that chord is high in information. Um, and how do you smooth out the information flow? Well, one way is to just take more time on that chord because then uh, you know, the amount of information per second is reduced a little bit because the chord is more spread out over time. And um, it turns out experiments, including experiments by me and my students show that performers do this. They do slow down when they get to a chromatic chord or unexpected chord, uh, they do slow down. And it's not just because they're surprised by the chord because even when they know the piece really well and they practice it a lot, uh, they do this. So it seems to be something that performers naturally do. So that's a rather simple example of uniform information density from the performer's perspective. Um, another example from a compositional point of view, well, if you look at uh, Renaissance counterpoint, going back to 16th century Palestrina and people like that, they had this style of composing and there are fairly strict rules that, that, that they follow in this style. And some of the rules relate to the way you use you can use rhythms of different lengths. 
And basically, it turns out that uh, so they distinguish between steps and leaps as you know, a step is a move to an adjacent note on the scale, and a leap is a move to a note farther away. And um, the style is mostly steps with occasional leaps, but there are rules when you can when you can use steps. And it turns out that that's very much related to to the length of notes. And basically, uh, the the shorter notes um, have to be. Uh, approach and left by step. And what does that do? It makes them more predictable because steps are what we expect, right? And um, and leaps are not. The, it's the longer notes uh, that tend to be um, approached by leap. And that's dictated in the rules of the style. And um, it turns out, if you look at the, the statistics, that the composers follow that those rules. So that's that that's another example of uniform information density to so taking more time on um, on things that are less expected. That's yeah, really interesting. And actually, if it's all right, I'd just like to go back to something you said um, a little earlier about there being this sort of optimal level of complexity. Yeah. How universal is that, or is that listener dependent? Well, um, it's a very general theory, and. Um, it's, I mean, I don't think anybody claims that it happens all the time or with, with every listener or with every piece, but it's more like a sort of trend or mm. a, a general norm that, uh, complexity is that composers and performers kind of favor this moderate level. Um, and I don't know if you're asking about whether it differs across individuals in terms mm. of maybe some individuals like more complex music and some like a moderate level and some like a, a low level. And that's certainly possible. And I don't know if that's been studied. It's, it's tricky because it's affected by training, right? Mm -hmm. Because complexity relates to expectation and expectation is in the, is in the listener's mind and our expectations vary from one listener to another if if you're trained on classical music and you've heard a lot of classical music then you have strong expectations for what's going to happen next if you've never heard a classical piece then your expectations would be would be weaker the same is true for you know javanese gamelan or indian classical music or any any style if you're if you've heard a lot of this style then um then the style is going to be more predictable if you try to measure sort of predictability in an objective way, you do find that uh, listeners with higher music, higher levels of musical training like more complex music. And that may be because they find the music more predictable. Um, and so from the listener's point of view, um, their level of complexity may not be any different. Their preferred level of complexity may be the same as that of an untrained listener, but uh, that trained listener just finds the music more predictable and thus less complex. Yeah, really interesting. And and I I think I'm right in saying that this um, uniform information density. Do we do we abbreviate that to? Uh, UID, that's right. Some we do, UID. UID. Yeah. Um, that's previously been applied in language, and you and you said yourself that you have studied language. Um, yes, it has. It has, and there's some of the same findings crop up in language that 
we find in music, people slow down on unexpected words. Uh, the, the example I give, I can't remember if I gave it in the paper, but I've given it in talks sometimes. Is it, if I was going to say, I walked my dog in the park, I probably wouldn't take much time on the word dog. But if I was going to say, I walked my frog in the park, <laughs> then I would probably take more time on that word because it's a very unexpected word. And you sort of want to give the listener a little bit more time to process it. That's an excellent example. And I certainly would have follow-up questions to that statement. Um, <laughs> yeah. And you yourself, you're a composer. So so how does this research influence the music that you write? Um, and, and actually, is there somewhere we can see examples of your work? Yeah, um, that's a great question. And people often ask me that. Um, I tend to think of my composing and my research as pretty separate. Um, my composing is very intuitive, and I don't usually start with a theoretical premise or something or some theoretical idea that I want to explore. I start with an idea that just pops into my head, you know, a, a theme that pops into my head when I'm walking down the street or, or you know, in the shower or whatever, and I think, wow, that's, that's a good melody. That melody deserves to be developed. Um, but I do think there are indirect connections, I think. Um, sometimes in my theoretical work, I've found some kind of pattern in, well, but by the way, I should also say that my, uh, my composing style is very much rooted in classical and romantic music. It's very much taking, you know, early 19th century music as a starting point and, and then trying to do original things with it and um, taking it in different directions, often mixing it with elements from popular music or uh, doing rhythmic things and harmonic things that no 19th century composer would have done, but, but still uh, very much rooted in, in that style. Um, but I have sometimes found things in my theory and music cognition work, certain regularities of musical style, and then I realized that I've been doing that in my own com composing for years without even being aware of it. Uh, like I, I wrote a paper on how closing themes in sonata forms tend to be end accented, me meaning that the little theme at the end of a sonata exposition often has the accent at the end rather than at the beginning, the metrical accent, as mm. most themes do. Um, and I wrote a paper about that. And then I realized that I've, I've been doing that in my own music for years without realizing it because I was just kind of intuitively picking up on what classical composers do without being aware of it. Um, and probably there's influence the other way too. I mean, when I'm thinking about uh, a certain piece of music that I'm analyzing, then it's it's in my brain and it's in my ears. And probably that does affect my composing too in ways that I that I'm not aware of. Answer so the second part of your question. Thanks for asking about my music. Well, I I have a website, um, davidtemperley.com. Uh, just remember the third E in temperley, T-E-M-P-E-R-L-E-Y, and um, there you can hear a lot of my my compositions, and I've uh, written mostly chamber music uh, and solo piano music, and I've been fortunate to have some great players and ensembles play some of my pieces. Lately, I've been working with some of the faculty at Eastman School of Music, where I teach, and uh, I've they've done some wonderful performances of my 
work. So you can find recordings and scores of my pieces at my website. Great. Thank you. And we'll make sure that that link is um, available in the in the podcast show notes as well. Mm, thanks. For those of you that are new to the podcast, this series, we run alongside an online speaker series in which people working loosely in the field of music cognition or music psychology present their work and start a conversation. This takes place on Zoom at 1pm British Summertime on Fridays, and you're all so welcome to join us for that. As well as chatting to me for the podcast today, David will be presenting as part of this Music Cognition Matters speaker series. Can you give us a brief overview of what you will cover in your presentation? Yeah, um, well, it's about uniform information density, uniform information flow, which is what I was talking about before. And um, I guess I sort of summarized it then. Um, I'll be talking about uh, expressive performance. As I mentioned, I'll be talking about rules of counterpoint and then some other topics. Um, One thing I'm going to talk about is classical themes and the way themes or melodies are constructed. And one thing that I've noticed is that um, when a classical composer writes a theme, they'll often repeat a pattern, like a pattern of intervals or pattern of notes with a change. And when they make a change, it usually involves making an interval larger rather than smaller. And there are many examples where composers make those changes, and they usually seem to be changing to a larger interval. And why is that? I think there's a connection with uniform information flow there, because basically, when you repeat a pattern, it's predictable, right? You hear a pattern, you don't know what it's going to be. But once it starts to repeat, you think, oh, okay, now, now I know what it's going to be. So that's low in information. And it sometimes could be too low in information, right? It could be kind of predictable. So the composer might want to change it. And when they change it, uh, they're probably going to want to change it in a way that spices it up or makes it a little bit more surprising. And the logical way to do that is by making one of the intervals larger. Because as I said earlier, larger intervals are, are less expected. They're less um, common than small intervals. And um, and so uh, and I was talking to my wife about this this morning, and she said, "Well, what about music that's uh, that just repeats the same pattern over and over again?" And <laughs> this relates very much to your question about how is it universal? And, and that's a good point. And there is a lot of music that does that is just very repetitive and repeats the same pattern with very little change. And I think that relates to the different functions of music. And, you know, a lot of music is for dancing and for dance music, you you don't, your predictability is good. You're not especially interested in being surprised. Um, But uh, other music is more for focused listening and in in that situation, then, you know, playing playing with the listener's expectations is more desirable. Thank you. So as I said, if you want to join us for the talk, then you can find the joining instructions on our website, www.mus-cog-matters.glitch.me. Invite your colleagues, your students, your friends and family, and anyone who you think would be interested in this subject. So this research is but one of the many projects that you have worked on and are working on. Is there something else exciting that you are currently working on that we should look out for? 
So I would say this sort of information flow work has been one big part of my research in the last few years. And the other part really relates to popular music. And um, this goes back uh, more than 10 years. Um, I was working with one of my students at Eastman, Trevor de Klerk, and he was doing his dissertation on popular music. And we were thinking a lot about the theory of popular music with regard to harmony and form and other things. And we realized that we didn't really have good a good theory of popular music with regard to harmony and rock in particular, rock defined broadly as a, a broad category of late 20th century popular music. And different theorists have speculated about it, but there wasn't sort of any agreement as to what are the rules of rock harmony or just what are the norms? And some people said, well, it's basically just like um, watered down classical harmony. And other people said, no, it's the opposite of classical harmony. Um, and so we decided to do a corpus project and we took um, Rolling Stone magazine's list of the 500 greatest songs of all time, um, which was based on a poll. And obviously that's very subjective and, and it doesn't really matter whether or not they're the greatest songs. It's just a sample of, of rock songs. And um, we analyzed all the songs in terms of harmony and analyzed all the harmonic progressions by ear. And we transcribed all the melodies by ear. And then we gathered a lot of statistics about the frequency of different harmonies and different harmonic progressions and different scale degrees. And um, I've written quite a bit about that. Uh, my third book, The Musical Language of Rock, came out in 2018, and that's partly based on this corpus work. Um, and then more recently, we've taken, <clears throat> we've been looking at uh, rhythm and meter in that corpus, and also gathering more corpus data. Uh, I, one, another one of my students, Joseph Vanderstel, for his dissertation, he created a corpus of a hundred songs, popular songs, one from each year of the 20th century. And again, transcribed all the melodies. And our purpose there was to look at rhythm and specifically syncopation and how syncopation develops over the 20th century. And um, found some really interesting things. Um, one thing, well, this is, gets just a little bit technical, but, uh, one thing I've done in my work on syncopation is distinguish between what I call second position syncopation and fourth position syncopation. So second position syncopation is like on if you have an accent or a long note on this second eighth note of a half note segment. So da-da, 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 right? The second note of those pairs would be a second position syncopation. And a fourth position syncopation would be an accent on the fourth eighth of a half note segment. So da, 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 something like that. And people haven't really focused on that distinction much. It's been kind of mentioned briefly, but it turns out that it's a really crucial distinction. And those two types of syncopation are used in different ways. Second position syncopations usually have unstressed syllables. Fourth position syncopations have stressed syllables. Um, 
Second position syncopation is present in European music, classical music, going back to the, there's a lot of it in the 19th century songbooks. Fourth position syncopation is almost non-existent in any type of published 19th century vocal music, as far as I can tell. And it, we first see it really in African-American music around 1900, namely ragtime. That's where you start to see fourth position syncopation. And then what happens in the 20th century is fourth position syncopation starts out very rare in about in 1900, but then it gradually increases to, to the point where it's really the dominant form of syncopation at the end of the century. Whereas second position syncopation is, is fairly common at the beginning and gets a little bit more common as time goes on. But uh, those two different kinds of syncopation have very different historical trajectories. And um, I think that's uh, really suggests a new way of thinking about rhythm in 20th century popular music. And it also points to this. I mean, it's often said that, um, quite rightly, that uh, the rhythm of popular music has roots in African-American music, which is quite true. But I think what we've done in this study is show this very specific and super important rhythmic pattern that is can be traced to um, African-American music, whereas other forms of syncopation may have roots in uh, European music or, or may um, or, or go back quite a long way before the 20th century. Yeah, fascinating. And so what are the next steps of, of that project? Where do, where do you take that next? Gosh, um, a few ideas. I mean, we want to, I want to analyze the harmonies of this, the songs in this 20th century corpus. We have harmonic analyses of songs in the rock era, but I'd like to extend it backwards and get more data from the, uh, from the early 20th century. Actually, there's kind of a interesting possibility that connects with complexity and things I was um, talking about earlier. Uh, you can see syncopation as a form of complexity because it, if you have syncopation, then there are more possible places in the measure that notes can happen and accents can happen. So this increase in syncopation over the 20th century, you could see as a kind of increase in complexity, right? Increase in rhythmic complexity. Um, now, the uniform information density view would predict that music would decrease in complexity in some other way to compensate for that. And a natural, one possibility is that it decreases in harmonic complexity. And I think to a lot of people that rings true, right? I mean, early 20th century, a lot of those early 20th century songs by you know Cole Porter and people like that have quite interesting harmonic progressions. And then uh, in the pop or rock era, especially in the, the 80s and 90s, a lot of harmonic progressions get very simple. And it's basically just the same four chord pattern over and over again. Um, and it would be nice to have some actual data to support that. And uh, I'm thinking of, I'm hoping to add harmonic information to this 20th century corpus, um, probably with the help of some other students at Eastman. Um, and then we can test this um, prediction about the decreasing harmonic complexity. Wow, that sounds so exciting. And I'll definitely, we will all look out uh, for that 
as it emerges. Um, and so we reached my final question, actually, which I ask all guests. Um, and that is, what are the most interesting questions that have not yet been explored in music psychology or music cognition? I think the big question is, why does anybody like music? Sure. <laughs> and I think that's uh, one of the most mysterious questions of any kind that 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 we have. I mean, most things that people enjoy, whether it's food or sex or <laughs> um, or exercise or things like that, there's clear or evolutionary reasons for why we like them. And with music, it's pretty much a complete mystery. And there's been a ton of recent work on music and evolution, and I haven't really gotten into that area much, and, and I don't follow it very closely, but I think it's uh, still really wild conjectures. I mean, I, I think we're a long way from really knowing the answer, and I, I don't know if we ever will. Um, but then going along with that, the question that my work or people in music cognition might be able to contribute to is why is one piece better than another? Why is one melody better than another? You know, you can take a great melody. Uh, I went to um, the movie Shrek uh, when it first came out and I heard that song, Hallelujah by Leonard Cohen. And I'd never heard of it before. No one mentioned it to me before. I knew immediately, this is a great song, right? This is a great melody. And everyone agrees, and it's been covered a zillion times. And, you know, it's, everyone agrees that's one of the great songs of recent decades. Um, but what makes it great? It's, uh, <clears throat> I, it might be partly the lyric, but it's just a great melody. And um, that's something I've been thinking about lately, what makes a great melody. And I have some, I, I gave a very speculative talk about it at a conference in South Korea um, earlier in the summer. But um, I have some thoughts about it that I'd like to try to work out further. But I think it's it's very much a wide open question. I agree. Um, and on that note, I will say thank you ever so much to you for sharing your work and, and ideas with me today. Um, it's been wonderful hearing hearing all about it. Well, it's been my pleasure. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me on your series. You can join us for Davy's presentation at one o'clock British summertime on Friday, the 29th of September. All the information can be found on our website, the link for which will be in our show notes.